on spiritual warfare. I studied on this subject all day. I kind of switched gears because I'm going to just name one particular person that's under spiritual warfare attack and not everything I was working on. And that one person is you. (laughs) And the title tonight is called How the Devil Can Take You Out of Ministry. The Target. I remember one time being in Israel and we were up on, I think, the seventh floor. And suddenly, in the middle of the night, when I'm up there working on something on the computer, I see a laser pointer come through the room and just start looking around. And Lynn, that is a bad feeling up on the seventh floor, to see a laser light looking for you. And so anyway, you sure didn't want it to end right here of, hello world. Anyway, I never did quite figure out who was looking for us and how they could find me up on the seventh floor and and put a light in our apartment room. But that's what we're doing tonight. We're putting a lot on you. You are the target. And so the study overall is the work of the accuser of the brother. But specifically, we're going to look at it in your life. And I'm going to take our reference scripture and we're going to do an exegetical sermon. You know what that means? So you take one verse and you dissect it. So we're going to look into Luke 22, verse 31, where Jesus is telling Peter, you're about to be targeted. You're about to be tempted. And it's such a unique thing that in the margin of your Bible, that it has something that he tells us about spiritual warfare. It's like one of those little jewels you get. You remember in Daniel where it says, sometimes you're fighting a whole, you know, like an angelic forces behind it. This gives you a understanding of what happens to you when you enter into temptation. To you, it's just a big set of feelings. I just don't feel good. I just don't feel this way. I don't feel... And you're going off of feelings, but there's a lot more behind it than that. So your theme verse will be Luke 22. Now I'm going to tell you a story from a Baptist sermon, from an old Baptist preacher. And this Baptist preacher used this in one of his sermons. I love the story. It's not told well. So just kind of help me fill in the gaps because these are his exact words. But he was saying, I led a man to the Lord. His name is Ralph Henderson. I like the guy immediately. I like to know the name of the people. He's just like me. I name names. (laughs) And so he said, I led this man, Ralph, to the Lord. And Ralph is back in the world now. I can tell you when it started. Ralph was out of Chicago. And Ralph was the type of guy everybody told me, leave this guy alone. He got saved. His wife got saved. I led them both to the Lord. They were gloriously happy in the Lord. This is somebody who sprang up quickly. They were really happy. After everybody said they couldn't get saved, they were happy with what happened. And he had a member of his church whose wife left him, and the guy's name who got dumped was Carl. His wife left him, and he had a broken leg. So he had really two bad things happen to him at once. Anyway, I guess she thought, I can get away from him now with his leg broke. This guy decided that he was going to do cross-line stall. You don't let a good wife leave you and just let it happen. He decided, we're going to go fetch the wife back. And so doesn't that sound like something we would do? Like, we just can't let this affair go on. We've got to do something about it. This is too much fun. So with this... <laughs> Reminds us of other glorious times, but he decides to go back into Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Now, those two words don't seem to go together, but that's the name of the city and the name of the state. To get his wife, and he's going to bring her back to Carl. Now, whatever reason she left for, she better fix it on the way home, because the preacher's going after her. 
So he said, I lived in the, back in the mountains of Georgia, and I didn't have a suitcase. So he said, I wanted to borrow a suitcase, so I sent my wife down to borrow, sent the little wife down to borrow the suitcase. Carl and I were going to Philadelphia, and I sent my wife down. Well, then I thought later on, hey, I was in the Air Corps, and I have a lot of buddies from Pennsylvania. This might be great. He said later I was thinking, well, I don't know one city from another in Pennsylvania, but he said maybe I could go and go see my buddies while I'm there. Maybe I could call them. He went down to talk to Ralph about his new plan. So he thought, while I go see Carl, I'm going to check on my buddies from the military. Now, the problem is he doesn't know how big Pennsylvania is, so he has not a bat's idea if his buddies are anywhere near him. So now he's borrowed a suitcase, and now he needs to borrow a very good, I thought we were going to say GPS. <laughs> There's some of you who have never seen one of these paper things that used to be the navigator in the front. Okay, so now he's got to borrow a map. And so he goes back down to Carl to get the map. My wife borrowed a suitcase, and he said, and I borrowed the map. And I made the trip, and I came back. And he said, I noticed something was wrong with my relationship with Ralph. I would try to get close to him. I'd been close to him before the trip. Now Ralph's not close to me. He would talk to me, but it wasn't the same. Then Ralph started doing the telltale sign. Ralph started missing church, and he began to drift away. His relationship with me began to deteriorate. So I did what I've been trained to do in cross lines. I had a crucial conversation with Ralph. What's wrong with you? What's happening? You know, seriously, you have to have courage and say, look, there just looks like something's not right between us. I asked him if anything was wrong. I couldn't get a thing out of him. What could it be? What in the world had happened to him? I prayed for him. I exhorted him. One year later, I'm sitting in his house. My wife is sitting there talking to his wife, Carol. We were talking. Doesn't that sound like us? We repeat ourselves over and over. And all of a sudden, he said something, and God turned on the light. And he said, do you know what you did? He says that he told his wife that he loaned the suitcase because they were going up there to get Carl's wife. He came down and asked me about a map because he was going to go see some of his buddies. He and Carl are going to go up there to wine and dine and tell them they are up there after his wife to bring her back and the preacher and him are just going up there to have a good time. Now, who told him that? Who told Ralph that thought? The devil. And that's what I was going to tell you. The devil puts thoughts in your mind all the time. Now, that's called the accuser of the brethren. And that's his job. He makes you think things that you think are revelation to you. You think you have discernment. You think you're seeing things that no one else is seeing. And so all of a sudden he realizes the preacher doesn't have good motives, does he? He's actually going down there and those two men are going to go out. And they're saying they're going after his wife, but you know when a man has a wife, leave him. It's a good time to step out on her. He's thinking those thoughts. The accuser of the brethren. If we want to put it in modern terms of spiritual warfare, it's the spirit of Leviathan. It's the spirit that makes you distrust people. It's the spirit that makes you suspicious. 
and you don't ask questions. It's the spirit that makes you think they're guilty first before checking into it. But watch what happens. Am I going to tell you right now, they got it all cleared up and everything's okay. Who told him that? One year after that, it all had come together. You put two things together that go together, Ralph. You did. But have allowed the devil to put something in your mind that never happened. I never got back Ralph's fellowship. His pride would not allow him to say that he had thrown a curve. Ralph has divorced Carol. He is out in the world. His downfall began when he listened to the accuser of the brethren. It destroyed a relationship with the man that had led him to the Lord. For a year, I did not know what it was, but now I do. It was the accuser of the brother. That's what we're talking on tonight. That is a terrible story of how the devil can take you completely out of the ministry. Now, you could say, what happened with this guy? Well, first of all, I'm going to tell you, when you find out something's not true, you need to repent. Don't sit there and just keep in your pride saying, I was right, or I just don't feel right about it. I don't care what you say. At that point, I'll tell you what I do. It's a little secret. If I get wrong information, that's a spirit of deception. I don't want to get wrong information in my ear, and I don't want to give wrong information out my mouth. I want truth attracted to me. I want truth coming towards me. So the minute I find out that even if one of you tell me something that's not true, I repent for ever listening to it because something in me should say, I'm not attracted to it if it's not truth. At this point, the guy doesn't have that ability. He hadn't learned to live truth. He hadn't learned to love truth. Pride is the number one way to get you out of ministry. And we've talked about it. There's the big false pride, the kind of pride that you see on people, and they are just consumed with their own pride. We talked to a man this weekend, and his voice of pride said, I'm a good guy. I'm a good man. And I asked him, what makes you good? He couldn't say, I'm a good man. What's pride look like in your life? Pride is the open door to this. Well, we look at this guy and we say, well, maybe he wasn't going to amount somebody anyway in the kingdom. Maybe he wasn't going to do much. Is that how God looks at it? Maybe he was going to do a lot. But I'm going to tell you, the same thing almost happened to Peter. The exact thing that happened to Ralph is about to happen to Peter. And Peter is going to be a big man in the ministry. Look at Peter. He is in the big three around Jesus. You know, people don't like cliques. I'm like, well, Jesus had his three. <laughs> I mean, he had his 12, but he took three. He took special attention. When you're in the big three, you don't think there's a way in the world you're vulnerable. Maybe you're more vulnerable. Maybe I'm vulnerable. Maybe even Jesus himself was vulnerable. It's going to be how you interpret this word, Pierzo, for you to know if, if that's true about Jesus. Did you know when someone gets off, it hurts everyone? You know, it hurt this man that wrote the story. When someone that you've led to the Lord goes away from God, it hurts you. 
When someone backslides, do you know at night, sometimes I name the people that didn't make it. At night, you beat yourself up over the failures. At night, you think, what could I have done differently? How could I maybe made another move? And this is what this is about in ministry. I don't know how old Ralph was going to turn out, but I know every soul counts. And I also know that Peter for sure would have been a loss to the kingdom if he hadn't made it through. Now let's take a look at Peter's faith. First of all, we can't talk about this verse until we talk about the successful things Peter did. Peter was very successful. I mean, when you look at him, he was like unbelievable. In three short years, he was a rock. The guy was solid. The guy knew the Lord, and everybody respected Peter. Everybody looked up to him. And I'm going to tell you something. Peter had gained some legal ground, and I'll show you how he did it. So it started out with Peter being a fisher of fish. Now, fish are these slimy little creatures that you put in your boat, but Jesus told him, you can leave the slime, Peter, and you can start being fishers of men. Now, I hate to tell you, the slime might be on that job too, but it was in one day's time that Peter changed everything about himself. He was a cussing, rough sailor, and he knew what he was doing. He was proud of his muscles. He was proud of his tan. Peter was proud of his youth. He was proud of who he was. And overnight, somebody had changed his attention. How can you believe that a man could just walk along, tell you, throw your net on the other side, and instantly it would make you leave everything you knew in life? That's shocking. What kind of man was this? What kind of man would walk along and say, come follow me? And Peter would drop everything he was doing and following. What was it about Jesus that's that compelling? Can you imagine that he walks up and he tells them, it's the hair right there. We just have a, a vote for the hair. It's the hair. <laughs> what was it about Jesus? I was going to say the eyes. There's something, there's something so compelling. What is so compelling about the guy we were just speaking of that, that's our guy that he would cause a hundred men to follow him handing out Bibles? What would cause somebody to leave everything they knew? What is it about it? What kind of manner of man is this? Well, Peter had done it. And the results had come in good. It came in overnight and he was changed. And not only was he changed, just right from the beginning, everybody noticed Peter was special. He was in the top three. Now we could have a debate right here, but there's a good chance he was Jesus' favorite. You know, John had other ideals that he was the favorite. And you see in the gospel, John goes, I was the disciple Jesus loved. I leaned against Jesus. I mean, you saw John and Peter, and you even see them. You know, you see those guys kind of pairing off against each other. They kind of try to outrun each other in a lot of ways and just the way at the ending scene. But you've got something about Peter that you don't have of anyone else. Peter had walked on water. Now, when you're sitting around telling ministry stories to walk on water, there's nothing like it. I mean, I get my adrenaline from smuggling Bibles. I like sneaking stuff across borders. I like knowing that God's with me. But this guy, this is, I'm sure, his favorite story. 
So while everyone else goes, we saw you sink, he goes, I saw you sit in the boat. <laughs> I saw you do nothing with your life. You know, when someone starts to charge, I'm the leader. I blow the bugle and, and we run. And he was like, I'm just like Jesus. And he took a lot of pride in it. You know, Andrew, who brought him to the Lord, he kind of went into the distance. But Peter, no, he made the big cut. And then there's the funny scene where the rich young ruler, he can't do what Jesus asked of him. He just drops his head and Jesus felt a love for him. But anyway, Peter gets scared. Jesus goes, I'm telling you something. It's going to be really hard for, it's going to be almost impossible for any rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, doesn't that scare you? I mean, it just, he says, it's just going to be hard for people that have any amount of substance to enter the kingdom of heaven. And Peter screams out, then who could be saved? I mean, Peter is worried. He's like, how am I going to get eternal life if this is the case? And Jesus tells Peter that famous scripture. He says, if you leave mother and brother and sister and follow me, he says, I will give you a hundred times as much. And he makes it very clear. He said, mothers and brothers and sisters, I'm going to give you family. And then he tells you, I'm going to give you lands and houses and persecution. Nobody quotes that one. <laughs> but a hundred times as much. And Peter felt pretty good about himself that night because he knew he had left off. He had made the cut when no one else could. He was flying high. He was on the A-team. He was playing at the best. He knew Jesus well. And there were a lot of things that Jesus was confiding in Peter that he told Peter, don't tell anyone this until after I've been resurrected. Peter, don't tell this story. This isn't for everyone to know. Everyone else gets it in parables, but not you guys. Peter felt like he was in an exclusive group. You know, Peter had learned what communion was like. He learned about dipping his bread in the wine with Jesus, eating of the same loaf, drinking of the same cup. He knew what it was like. But it did scare him when Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me. It said all the disciples screamed out and said, is it I? Is it I? You know, there's this innate guilt about all of us or <laughs> this fear of like, oh my gosh, if, you know, if one of us is going to break down and be sifted, is it me that would do it? And Jesus says, it's the one I'm dipping this bread in and handing to. And you know how that story goes. Well, in John 15... Peter had a little bit of self-respect. He may be a follower of Jesus, but he had his limits. I mean, when Jesus wanted to wash his feet, he goes, it ain't going to happen here. He says, you're not washing my feet. Jesus says to Peter, he goes, if I don't wash your feet, you'll have no part in me. And then, so like Peter, I mean, he's all in. He's like, if you don't wash my feet, he goes, wash my whole body. And Jesus goes, wait a minute, wait a minute, Peter. <laughs> I'm not going to give you a free bath here. <laughs> it was a little too much. That's the kind of way Peter was. He was an extreme guy. Once he understood Jesus, he said, I'll go all the way. I'll strip down. I'll let you just wash me if that's what it takes. And Jesus says an interesting word to him. He said, Peter, you're clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Wow, that's a good word to have said. You're already clean. You just have dirty feet. And that's true about ministry. I preached a whole Sunday school lesson on that concept. We're clean because of the word, but our feet get dirty. So Jesus washed his feet. That was an intimate time with him. 
And then it went into payday. Peter distinguished himself, not just in the fact that he was a man of action. Now Peter distinguished himself with not only the fact that he was intellectually smarter, Peter distinguished himself in a very crucial area. Peter was the most spiritual, and he proved it. This happened in Matthew 16. And it says that when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do people think that I am? Who do they say that I am? And they replied, some think you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. What about you? Who do you think I am? And Simon Peter answered, you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. It just gives me chills to think of that moment. Peter knew who Jesus was. Nobody had to tell Peter his identity. Peter knew he was serving the Christ. And I'm going to tell you, if he knew it, then explain to me what happened later. Explain to me what happens a few verses down. Because something happens here so dramatic that Jesus recognizes it. And he said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. He says, For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my Father personally is speaking to you. He revealed to you who I am. And I tell you that you are Peter. I mean, Simon, you are Peter. He gave him a name change. Peter, you're a rock. That's where we got the name of our station. You're a rock. (laughs) And on this rock, I will build my church. And he said, and the gates of Hades will not be able to overcome this. And Peter, it doesn't stop there. He says, the church is going to be built. You're a rock. It's going to be built on a rock. And he says, Peter, I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And he goes, Peter, whatever you bind, whatever you lock, whatever you forbid will be forbidden and bound up. And whatever you loose will be loose here on earth and in heaven. Peter goes, I have no idea what that means, but it sounds like what I think I'm I'm about. I knew I had authority in this place. Yeah. Then he ordered his disciples to tell no one that he's the Messiah. Now, this is quite a moment here that Peter gets a name from the Lord. He gains legal ground. He has something that no one else has here. He has a revelation of who Jesus is. And so Peter is recalling the blessings which had been unfolded to him since the beginning of his career. Three years. (laughs) It would seem as if the circle were complete and there remained nothing more to learn. And that's where I'm going to challenge you. This is what keeps you either from being sifted or not, whether you know you've got to constantly be learning. Because at this point, Peter was pretty established. And you know why I know it? Because you can count yourself about seven verses down and you're smack into the middle of the problem. Now let's go a little deeper into this. Because in Luke 22, verse 31, it says, Satan is demanding to sift you. He goes, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift you as wheat. Some say ask, some say demand. There was a unk to it. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. 
And when you turn back, you'll strengthen your brothers. Two sentences. And it explains what spiritual warfare looks like. So, let's talk a second about the sifting process. Of all the words, if I was going to tell somebody was going to fall away from the Lord, the word sift is an odd word. Like, I, I just don't think about sifting that often. I really don't have a need to sift too often. I think about things I could sift through and don't want to talk about them. But I'm like, sifting? What could sifting be? Well, what does sifting wheat look like? And when you answer what sifting wheat looks like, it kind of gives you an answer of what sifting a human could look like. But that's the verb he uses, to be sifted. If the human is like the wheat, then the human to be sifted would be the chance of losing the good wheat all the while, while losing all the ground gained. Losing everything that's been done in your life, losing the harvest, losing what's been planted in you. And it shows you he's keeping the chaff, he's letting the wheat be lost. So the devil's planning on taking what's bad about you and keeping it, and letting what's good about you go away. And you know that's what bothers me about people that fall away. They're not completely bad. They're not all chaff. They're about 50-50. And half the time I sit there and think, why could the good side not win in them? I was voting for the good side. And you wonder, why in this situation would the bad side win on you? Well, the bad side, what could it be made out of? Well, in the sifting process, I want you to notice something. If you didn't catch it, Jesus doesn't use Peter's anointed name. He doesn't say, Peter, Peter. He named Peter the rock. But Jesus now uses the name in the passage, and he's calling him Simon again. He may have dropped back a little few notches. We can be renamed, but revert back to our old name, because we revert back to some of our old ways of thinking. Simon, Simon, when he says his name twice, it's not an accident. He's saying it twice to get your attention. Robbie, Robbie, <laughs> I'm speaking to you. Three times in two verses, three times in two sentences, he uses the name Simon. Simon, Simon, Satan. Oh, I don't like that. <laughs> Simon, that's your faith. Well, you see Jesus having a personal conversation with him. You know, Satan demands to tell God on you. Satan demands to do something with things that you're giving him a legal right to do. If we were talking in one of our Bible studies where we break apart things and study the concepts of evil and the origin, I want to say right now, I would call this the permission of evil. Satan's asking, can I have permission to do evil to this guy? I'm demanding, I'm demanding the ability to do evil. I'm telling you, that's something I don't want the devil to get over me. I don't want the devil to be able to demand, I can do evil to her. <laughs> I can take her apart. You know, the devil knows my past. <laughs> and so does God. And there's two people voting for him. It kind of reminds me of that skit we do where the chain, and it goes backwards and forth. And sometimes there's that wrestling for our soul. I'm going to tell you something interesting. 
when it says Satan is demanding, it's out of the New American Standard Bible they use that word. But you know what? This is a look into the invisible realm that we wouldn't know if Jesus didn't tell us. Yeah. We wouldn't know that Satan demanded anything. Peter has no idea anything's being demanded. Peter is just living his life the way things should be. Remember, I've been given the keys to bind and loose. And when I bind, <laughs> it's going to be bound on earth. And when I loose, even heaven's going to loose it. It is a good deal. I have authority, and you're going to know it. That's Peter. He doesn't hear that Satan's doing a darn thing. He hadn't been listening. He misses those rattles of the snake. He's not in tune to things. He's not sensitive, and he doesn't need a long time with the Lord because he knows what he's doing. And this is the point that Peter had gotten to. And it opens up a scene. I started researching this to put you a little history here. Where these legal scenes open up in the Bible? And I spent 12 pages, so be glad I didn't do that Bible study for you, studying these names I'm going to name to you very quickly. Of places in your Bible where a courtroom scene opens. Now you don't see it with Adam and Eve. There's a temptation scene. But in this, this is when the accuser takes what you're doing and has a legal right to do something to you. You know, there's a big fear on people to get sued. Guess who it is that I know that gets sued all the time? Mm -hmm. Trump. <laughs> I'm telling you, every day somebody sues you. And so always somebody's looking for something to legally do to you. Just sue you. And this is what we're saying is the devil is constantly looking for a way to prosecute you, to sue you, to bring something legal against you. An open door. And Satan was challenging the legality of hedges. You know, kind of gave me a scare seeing that hedge go down the other day. But there's a legality to hedges put up in your life. Can you legally have a hedge around you to protect you from evil? So you see this battle go on. The devil will come to take you out of the ministry. He will come to accuse you. He will come to say, you shouldn't be a preacher. You shouldn't open your mouth. You can't say anything. Look, the accuser of the brethren all the time telling you, you're not worthy, you're not good enough, you can't be in the ministry. They don't tell you that when you're fixing to go to the bar, but when you're fixing to go do something for the Lord, you start hearing, you're not worthy, you're not good enough. I've never heard, I'm not good enough to go over there and steal something. I'm not good enough to go over there and <laughs> drink something with all my gossip buddies. I never hear those thoughts on, a, on those temptations. But boy, you sure hear the thoughts when you're going to go do something for the Lord. No one hears them when they're going to go out with their buddies. So, Revelations 12, 9 and 10 tells you the accuser of the brethren is up before God day and night, night and day, making accusations. And some of us are giving him plenty to talk about. So he accuses. Y'all, there's bad publicity going on about you all the time. The devil's constantly in this war. He's trying to gain legal ground. He's demanding legal rights. This is the battle that Peter found himself in. Peter's now in court. Why is Peter in court? What had he done? Let me give you the three references, and I'd hope you'd write them down. 
But in Matthew 16:22, these were his faith failures. What are faith failures? What's going wrong here? In Matthew 16:22, Peter took Jesus aside and he began to rebuke Jesus. Never, Lord, he said, this shall happen to you. Now, Peter knew Jesus was the Messiah, but he felt confident enough he could tell Jesus off when he needed telling off. <laughs> and he tells Jesus, your will's not going this way. And of all the times for Jesus to use such strong language, it's shocking to me. I've written a hundred things about this to myself. You can get weak in the flesh. Remember when he said, let this cup pass? Maybe Jesus didn't need his main men trying to talk him out of God's will. I've asked myself a thousand questions about this, but Jesus turned to Peter and he said those words, get behind me, Satan. What words? Wow, just a few verses down from saying, Peter, you've got so much revelation. Now it's the devil using his mouth. I hate to tell you, but the devil bars our mouth and God bars our mouth. It's like both entities will use your mouth. Both can fill your mouth. And it's so shocking in Matthew 16 to see those verses where you can put them right there side by side. That God revealed it and Peter spoke it. And then suddenly Jesus is calling attention to Peter and he's saying, Peter, he says, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have your mind on the concerns of God, but you think it's a, but merely upon the devil. But what does it say? You don't have your mind on the concerns of God, but you have your mind on man's interest. So what man thinks about is demonic. What the world thinks about, the news I like every day. I mean, are these things, is the culture, is that, what are we talking about? But man's concerns, man's interest. Peter, you're letting the devil use you because you don't have your mind on God's concerns, but upon man's. Matthew 26, 34. He tells Peter, you will deny me three times. And Peter humbly says, lay hands and pray for me that this will never happen. Please, Lord. And instead, Peter declared, even if I die with you, I will never disown you. Well, he set Jesus straight on that. He was like, you read me wrong on that. You got me down wrong. I'm telling you, if everybody else does it, I will never do it, even if it means death for me. The other disciples said, me too, me too, me too. <laughs> Peter was the leader. It was Pete and repeat. <laughs> Luke twenty-two thirty-three. Peter's self-confidence is plainly manifested. Lord, I'm ready to go with thee. I'm ready to go to prison and to death. I am ready. Now this is where it comes in. It's that little thing I told you. It's pride and it's boastful. It is that boastful pride of life. Everyone else may do it, but not me. I just get down to my grit of who I am. If everyone else denies you, I will die for you. These are the words I heard Sunday. Simon, you shouldn't have said that. Jesus is looking at him. Simon, that's a boastful pride of life. That shouldn't have come out of your mouth. You're going to be tested by praise, and it was praise of yourself. <laughs>
Have you ever heard someone say something you're just like, oh? That's how you know to pray for them. Sometimes people say something and I go, Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're meaning. Sometimes you say something yourself and you, man, I shouldn't have said that. But you see this thing here, Simon, you shouldn't have said that. The devil heard what you said and now he's demanded to test you on it. You gave him opportunity. You put a neon sign up to yourself and says, I'm that and all that and more. Now he has a right to sift you. And he's going to make you prove it. It's going to rip your skin off your... Jesus felt it shift in the spiritual realm. Satan said, I'm going to prove, Peter, you're a liar. And the first person you're going to look like a liar to is... Who? Yourself. This was Peter's flesh, ready to face anything. The flesh, even when warned, is always self-confident. Your flesh has got to die. And if you're three years in the ministry and your flesh had died, it's a problem. And it could cost you your life. It could cost you being sifted. You can't be that same roaring fisherman you were and it work. Peter's at a level. It's going to start not working for him. He hits this place. What Peter's faith failure looked like was not understanding the kingdom. He was carnal fighting. He handled everything in the flesh, the fear, the denial. From this point on, he was going to buck up and not let it happen. And guess what? Jesus is so merciful. He gives him a warning. Jesus gives Peter a warning. He warns him. But what's happening? Peter wasn't listening. I was looking at that. When the Lord was going to be taken away from them and they would be externally unprotected, again, Jesus gives him a warning. But again, Peter wasn't listening. I wrote down in my notes, maybe Peter's greatest sin was he quit listening. He knew more than Jesus now. He wasn't listening. He hit it right on who Jesus was, only to make that condemning more. He knew who he was, and he wasn't listening. I mean, God was having to open up the heaven on transfiguration and tell Peter, listen to him. God didn't interrupt earth too much and intervene. He kind of kept to the natural laws. But on that particular occasion, he goes, he's my son. I'm well pleased with him. Maybe not so much with you. Listen to him. (laughs) Listening may have been the biggest problem. Peter wasn't being told what he wanted to hear. And Peter was mad. Peter's pride got in the way because he suddenly stopped getting what he wanted to hear out of Jesus. He wasn't being told what he thought was the best route. Listening when it's something you don't want to hear. It's the thing that separates the men from the boys. It feels like something's ripping out of you. Oh my gosh, you cannot hang around the kingdom too long and you don't hit this stage. Peter did not watch or pray, but he entered into temptation. The flesh could take him this far and then he fell into a trap. The devil now has a legal right over him. But the sad thing is, Peter doesn't know it. He is ready now for sifting. His boastful pride has come to get him. Simon, you shouldn't say that. 
The devil has heard you say it, and he's demanding now to sift you. Satan, you've done pride, and the Bible says when you get into pride, every single time, unrepented pride makes you what? Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. I'm going to prove that you're a liar. When we fall, when we fail, when our flesh is on steroids, when we're running everything in the ministry and it's outpaced our intimacy with God. You know, somehow we think we can run the kingdom without God. For Him, but without Him. I never forgot it in RB. I was taking notes on a lady who said, I realized ministry was outpacing my intimacy. It's not a one-time thing, y'all. It's every day. You feel your gasoline tank running on empty. I can't tell you how many times I have to slip away and get on my knees and tell God for five minutes, okay, it's your kingdom. It's your will. You're the king. Let's do it your way. I'm in a mess. I'm in trouble. I don't know what I'm doing. I can't tell <laughs> what I'm hearing. And you humble yourself. Y'all, you've got to let your connection with God keep you going. Because you can get to a certain level, and it might end up a mature deer, but it starts ripping you apart at lines. It starts tearing you up. And if you're hooked to someone that's going on with God, it will drive you crazy. That's where I wrote that Bible study that scared me the most. It's those people closest to Jesus that were destroyed the most. This is where we are now. We're in the sifting room. And it's worse than the banana room. (laughs) (laughs) And unfortunately, the man who gave us the banana room, he went to the sifting room and he got taken out. Because the bigger you are, the more this can happen to you, not the less. That's why I pray for your strong people in your life. It's the sifting room. You feel that daily. You want to quit. The territory of the Satan is the sifting room. You know, the prodigal son put himself there. You know, it's a bad day now. Peter and Jesus are kind of stepping on each other's toes. Actually, they don't want to talk about it, but they're on each other's nerves. And Peter finds Jesus irritating now. He really is irritated by him. Revelation. Maybe he gets into pride when he has a great revelation. Gets named Peter, gets given keys. Or maybe here when he offers Jesus protection that Jesus didn't take. He's mad. His pride's in the way. Peter feels confident enough to rebuke Jesus. Peter gets offended at Jesus. And the adversary is whispering to Peter, you're a liar, you're a liar. And the devil gets you where he wants you. He is getting you into a legal trap one step at a time so that he can have legal right to take you out. Peter was as good as a dead man here if it hadn't been for one thing. Now the mess is going to start getting inside of Peter's head. At first he was confident But have you ever had the devil use scripture against you? When you read what Peter did in Luke 22, the denial, it says that when Peter denied Jesus, he went and he started weeping bitterly. Like he cried and he cried. He was like, this isn't what I wanted. I didn't mean to say that. The mental impact, the thoughts start coming. And all of a sudden he hears those words that Jesus had spoke. And he says, 
If you deny me to men, you'll be denied before the fathers and the angels. The devil presents the evidence. And he starts saying to him, You said yourself that if they denied you, God, you would deny them before God and the angels. You said yourself, Jesus, that he'd be denied. Peter has to be denied now. He has crossed the denial line. He has publicly denied you. God, you know what it says. The Bible says, you said if they love you, they'd obey you. This proves Peter doesn't love you. It's classic evidence. Peter may say all day he's the favorite, but this relationship just goes one way. Peter really doesn't love you. If he did, he would humbly listen. He would obey you. Heads are spinning now. You said, Jesus, you said it yourself. Peter is taken out. If anyone puts his hand to the plow and he even looks back, he's not worthy. Peter is not worthy of anything you've given him. You're building a hedge around this man. He's your favorite and it's all emotional. You do not have legal right to Peter. Peter has chosen me. Peter has chosen himself and Peter's in my hands. It's legal right. Peter didn't see himself slip there. Hey, God, did you hear Simon Peter when he cursed and denied the Lord? Did you hear him? He must be judged, God. You have to do your duty. You're fair. You judging. Remember, God, you only have to have two or three witnesses in your book. I've got three witnesses against him. Peter stands a condemned man. You said it's Judas. I tell you, it's Peter. He goes down too. I'm picking these guys off one by one. When the leader goes down, if that guy falls, they all fall. You hear him? Every time you fail, you fail so hard. It'd just be best if you quit the ministry. You're making a mess. You got to quit before you explode. You better quit before you make a mess. You know one thing going off inside of you, and you're going to explode all over everybody. You're a hair's breadth away from blowing it. Peter was in a mess. Peter's secretly mad at the founder, and he can't say anything. He's trapped with God. It's a mess that he is. Satan accuses our sins, and he starts to drive us into despair. It pulls us away from God. Satan makes us think that God is through with us. Have you ever felt like God was through with you? How many times have you felt that way? You hear verses in your head working you over. The devil's a liar. And if the devil ever tells you the truth, it's just in order to get a lie across to you. You think about Judas. You've just heard he went and hung himself. You're such a loser, Peter. As long as you're feeling guilty, then Satan's doing a good job of accusing us. He drives us further from the Lord because there is no relief from there. There's no relief. Do you hear me? There's no relief. I feel the guilt, the shame. You confess. You try to say something. Who can you say anything to now? They've got Jesus. He's captured. Your relationship's broken. Guilt, shame. When there's no relief, it brings one thing into your heart. Rebellion and unbelief. You start doubting. Was this whole thing a mistake? Did I make a mistake three years ago when I joined the ministry? This is too much. Nobody could stand up under this load. It's breaking me mentally. I have unbelief against the God of all grace. It will make you do what? It will make you just want to curse God and die. That's his philosophy. Here's the matter to Satan's purpose. You know why people are quiet Christians? Because they got something back there driving them. Because the devil has one thing in mind. He wants to stop your mouth and stop your testimony. 
Peter, you're the loudmouth. And now, your mouth is useless. Your mouth is out of control. Your mouth isn't saying the praises of God. You're not hearing God. The devil wants to put an end to your mouth. Why are you quiet? It's because of this. You're in warfare. It leads to guilt. It turns you inward. You go over it over and over and over in your mind. If your mind's doing this, you're in spiritual warfare. Your sins go around in your mind. It gets darker and darker. You despair. You're despaired. You can't tell anybody. You're alienated. You can't tell anybody. You're roped off, fenced off. It's lonely at the top. It's hopeless. No one understands. They weren't even good enough to get where you're at. It leads to unbelief and rebellion against God because you can't find any relief. It sets forth a sort of a confusion. It leaves you there. You're stuck. You don't see another path. It doesn't point to God now. There's no sweet reminders coming in Peter's mind. Think of sweet reminders that God has given you. Your mind's frozen in it. They said that when you're unhealthy in your mind, you can't think of one good thing from your past. They say that when something's going wrong, you can't remember one good memory. They said that an unhealthy person is stuck in the moment and they can never remember anything good about the past. Peter can't think a thing good about it. You know, those sweet reminders that God has given me, pray. Hey, grab the something before you leave the house. Don't forget the God tell me, hey, I'm here. Turn off the, oh, there was something I was trying to remember. And God gives it sweet reminders. Peter has none of that. Satan gives you reminders. Judah's death. You heard about it. Judas fell headlong. He fell headlong. He burst open and his bowels came pouring out. He dumped his guts. He crushed. That was Judas and he went a day ahead of you, Peter. Unless it has been handled, it has driven some people to suicide to get away from these thoughts of the accuser. These are thoughts left unchecked. If they're going on in your mind, you're imploding. It may be a slow death, and it may be you just kind of lose your will to live, and you don't quite care what happens to you. It might be you just lose your will to win, or it may be sped up, and it may be forever Forever you're thinking, it's just not worth it. I want myself checked out. I can't take these thoughts anymore. You know, have you ever felt like God was through? Well, Peter was feeling it. Jesus and him were through forever. He had walked away. But what happens? Now let me tell you when you better hope you get in the right ministry. And I'm fixing to hit something here you may not like. But you might as well do it when there's visitors. So it just... (laughs) But I'm going to challenge something here in the Bible. What happens when a person who is your delegated authority over you turns you over to the devil? You're in this mess and you're turned over to the devil. I'm going to give you a couple of verses. 1 Corinthians 5, 5. Paul, turning them over to Satan that his flesh might be burned out of him. <laughs> I got tired of him sinning. I just turned him over to the devil. I want his flesh to rot. 1 Timothy 1.20 I turned over Hymas and Alexander with a name like Hymenus. You need to be turned over. Whom I've delivered unto Satan 
that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, it's not I want Satan having them forever. I'm just turning them over to the devil because I've had enough of them. They won't do what I'm telling them to do. This is in the Bible because Paul did it. But I'm going to tell you, I wouldn't copy it. I'm so glad that Jesus didn't do it to Peter. It is a statement that God alone does not have a strong enough method to woo someone back in. It mixes kingdoms like the use of hiring a hitman. You don't have to turn them over to the devil. You want me to tell you the truth? They're already in the devil's territory. The prodigal was already in the territory. But for the sake of prayers, your life is going to be messed up here. When they get out of God's will, they're already owned by the devil. Abraham interceded for Lot, and Lot wasn't that great of a guy. He didn't intercede against him. He interceded for him. And Lot wasn't my favorite nephew. Luke 15, the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost son. What was done with the sheep that strained? The lost son. I had a guy the other day tell me, well, Jesus used that rod on him, broke his leg. I go, look up Luke 15. <laughs> It says Jesus took the sheep, he put him on his shoulders. He left 99 other good ones and went out and got the one and put it on his shoulders and carried him back. Jesus did not turn Peter over to Satan, even though Satan was demanding to sift him. You know what happened to Paul? He tried it. It scared the guy so bad when Paul turned him over, he immediately reneged and demanded to be restored. In 2 Corinthians 2, 5 through 11, Paul quickly retrieved the guy, pulled him back in, and pulled the attack off of him and told everyone, leave him alone, lest it crush him to the point that he can't turn. An example of those who do it, it's a being right doctrine that matters more than love. It could be, I'm challenging it, it could be impatience. You know why I know it could be? Because sometimes I get impatient. Can you imagine? Can you imagine getting tired of someone you're called to minister to? <laughs> can you imagine getting impatient with you? How would you feel if you heard, Angie, turn me over to the devil? <laughs> but you're tempted to. Some of your words, some of the things you say. I had a lady tell me this weekend. I wanted to take my husband's ashes and go dump them on this lady's porch. Sometimes you're pretty mad. Wow. Impatience. You don't want your leadership to be impatient. You don't. You want them to have great patience with you. Great mercy and a great prayer life. Because when you do your big piece of flesh... Stupid. <laughs> I'm contrasting this to Jesus' approach because Jesus gave us a different approach here. But I want to tell you something personal about Jesus. It might have hurt his feelings. It might have. You know, when you're dealing with somebody that's all love, hurtful, I'm going to tell you, to be in ministry, you're going to hurt every day of your life. To lead people, that's what you want to do. Every day you're going to get pain. It's going to be those closest to you will hurt you the most. Because sometimes their flesh just roars.
and Jesus was at this point. The anger, the tempted to give up on him. Peter wasn't loyal to Jesus. Peter wasn't loyal to Peter. And it was at a time when Jesus needed him the most. The very person that was Jesus' closest friend that Jesus had taken up on all the highest mountains. When Jesus was in the lowest valley, it says Peter followed him at a distance. There are people that you're going to pray for, and they're going to be the ones who have hurt you the most. That might be why the Bible tells you in Hebrew, be kind to those who give account for yourselves. <laughs> because sometimes they're working on their last leg too, and you don't know the blows they took that day. And so here you see this. At that point, you think you're the only one hurting, and you're thinking you're the only one feeling the pain. And you know who people are the hardest on? Those that they see are the strongest. You know how I know? I watched my dad. And nobody ever saw the pain. They only saw the strength. One day he told me, Are you sure you want to follow my footsteps? He said, If you choose a prophetic walk and you tell people what they don't want to hear, he said, You're going to hurt every day of your life. If you're an exhorter and you tell them what they do want to hear, they get a little mad. But if you tell them what they don't want to hear, a lot of times they're going to hate you for it. And they're going to tell you, they're going to put bad rumors out about you in the town and say, you hate them. It's the price of ministry. A painful verse, you did your number one wrong. In Matthew 26 it said, meanwhile Peter followed him at a distance. Luke 22:61 is the verse that Peter would like to forget. And having turned, the Lord looked at Peter. And Peter had just told the girl, I don't know who he is. I've never seen him. Of all things, Peter broke with a girl. <laughs> the guy that said, I will go to prison. I will die. And it's a girl that likes your accent. It says it's Galilean. And you say, I swear it. I don't know it. And to make you know I'm not religious, I'm going to throw some curse words in here too. Because I'm going to tell you, freakity frack, 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 I'm not one of them. My flesh can roar anytime I need it to because I can escape. Peter wasn't planning on remaining one of them. And yet a few verses before, in Luke 22:61, it says Jesus turned and he looked at Peter. Can you imagine that scene that Jesus is being drugged off to be crucified and Peter denies him and Jesus looks and they catch each other's eyes. What a moment. Pride will put us in some prisons of our own making because in 28 Jesus had said, I am so thankful for those who have stood beside me in my trials. It actually, they interpreted it to say, I'm so thankful for those who stood beside me in my temptations. I told you, you got to decide what Pierzo means. Maybe Jesus was being tempted too. And he goes, I'm just glad to have any friends at this point. Peter wasn't going to remain one of those that stood beside him. Whose territory is a person in when he falls away? Whose territory should we be trying to be getting him into? What action did Jesus take for Peter? How can Jesus stop the accuser of the brethren over Peter? 
I would say John 8, 1 is a good way to look at it. He looked at the woman caught in adultery, and he said, Who are your accusers? Who condemns you? Jesus was very aggressive with this situation. No man, no man accused her at that moment, and yet they had all been the ones that drug her. She had some very aggressive accusers, and he broke the power of them off of her. He broke the power off of her. She was laid on the ground. She was torn. She was broken. He scattered them. He knocked it out of them. He didn't quote his adultery verses to her. Jesus didn't start quoting, Hey, woman, you're in adultery. He didn't take her having to be right on this for Jesus to remove the accusers. Jesus was the only one perfect enough to have said something here. But he didn't make her be right before he made the accusers leave. It takes just a moment to repent. You know the good thing right now? You may be in a mess. You may be in a hole. You may be in the worst thing. You may be in going through this for months. But you're one prayer away from being right with God. You're one prayer away from getting this straight. And it may be why you're not out of it. You're not repenting for the right stuff. You're thinking about your offenses. You're thinking about your anger. But you're not repenting for your pride. You're not listening. And you're not learning. What did Jesus say to the woman to help her not let it happen again? The best words that could ever be said to you. He says to the woman, go and sin no more. Do you know what he establishes here? Jesus establishes the possibility that we can go and sin no more. He establishes the command, the hope. Jesus establishes a hope inside me that I can go and sin no more. Some of you need the hope. You need the command of Jesus. And you need the possibility that you can stop sinning. And that's how Jesus dealt with it. That's Jesus in action. And that's what he did to accusers. That's what it looks like in the natural. Jesus in action. How did Jesus stop sifting? When you feel someone's about to be sifted, he used his prayer life to stop it. He had action to how he handled it. Prayer, talking to God confrontations, talking to them. Jesus told Peter, you're going to do it, and it won't be once. You're going to do it three times. You know, Psalm 35, 5 says that angels sweep them away like chaff. This is our word. He sweeps them away. Your accusers are swept away. One time the Lord told me that my many mistakes, my many sins, were written on the sands of the shore. And when the waves come, they're washed away. One time, he embarrassed me so bad in front of the church. With Brother Jacob, he says, I've forgiven you of a lot. You need to tell me thank you. Believe me, I said a lot of thank yous. I don't want pride. I don't want to think I've ever earned the right to stand, to speak. I want to say it's blood. It's a bloodline. It's the love of the Lord. How does Jesus regain this lost ground? Jesus discerned this ahead of time. Jesus told Peter before he sinned it was going to happen. My favorite thing is when Jesus smells it on me and tells me, don't do it. He tells Peter, pray. He confronted it before it happened. It wasn't even an action in Peter yet. He tried to stop it in Peter as an attitude before it became an action. Have you all heard that one? 
You get busted when it's an attitude before it's an action. Jesus prayed. He tried to get Peter to pray in the garden, but Peter didn't see the need to pray. So Jesus prayed and Peter slept. You ever find yourself fighting harder for someone else than they're fighting for themselves? He goes, couldn't you just pray an hour, Peter? That's my prayer life wish to you. Could you not just pray an hour? The answer to stop sinning is praying. He said, pray so you don't enter into temptation. You can pray yourself out of temptation preventatively. If you're falling into temptation, it's a prayer failure. It's a prayer failure. Jesus tells Peter, this is the action. He said, go tell Peter, I'm back. My body's a little different. I have a few new features. I can walk through walls. Go tell Peter. Then they have breakfast on the beach. Of course, Jesus reenacts the way they first fell for each other. He hollers out and he tells these men in a boat, hey, throw the net on the other side. This time, instead of Peter throwing the net on the other side, he dove in the water, closed, and he swam for Jesus. Sometimes Jesus is kind of romantic. He'll take you back to the way he wooed you to begin with. Who is this man standing there? You get on the land, and they have to reconnect. Peter, do you love me? Oh, you know I phileo you. Do you agape me? Peter, you know I phileo you. Peter, do you phileo me? And Peter dropped his head. Confronted after it happened. He was confronted before it happened, and he's confronted after it happened. Asked him if he loved him. He pointed him back into the ministry. And guess what Jesus did? He reinstated Peter publicly. No doubt, nothing of a man would remain in the sifting bin, but what God has wrought in the disciples inside must remain. This reminds me, you're clean, Peter, because of the word I've spoken. You can think this, but you are born of incorruptible word. You're not going to forget this. There's something about truth. It's real appealing. When we fall, when we fail, when our flesh is on steroids, when we're running on empty, and when we let go of God, and when we're scared, we've never let go before, but we decide we're going to let go. And suddenly you hear that verse that says, nobody is able to snatch you out of my hands. Jesus didn't let Satan do it. He changed it by intercession. Jesus' prayer life on you. I have a question. Does Jesus have a prayer life on everyone? Because I see some shipwrecks. I see some failures. I see some people whose faith failed them. Does the one that loves you, that brought you in the ministry, are they praying for you? Your parents, the ones over you, the ones that love you? We find this word to be true. He won't let us be snatched out of his hand. What did Peter look like when he was back in action? Well, you have to laugh. You know, Peter's personality didn't change. In 2 Peter 2, 1, he goes, I'm telling you, those people who denied the Lord brought this on themselves. Those who denied, I think if I'd been Peter, I'd never wanted to say the word deny. Like I would be, Peter is up preaching in his book, writing it down. Those who have denied the Lord. 
I can't believe it. Knowing Peter's history, what is Peter talking about? I have seen it myself. The Peters will tell you, I can't believe you're doing this. And I'm like, my gosh, they got healed of it three hours ago themselves. <laughs> On the day of Acts, you know what Peter says? He goes, you Jews, whom you crucified the Lord. He goes, you have denied him. And I'm like looking at Peter going, and 3,000 get saved. I mean, Peter says, I mean, he's up there going, you did it, you cowards. <laughs> well, Peter's back Peter again, but he's connected this time, and he knows who he belongs to. One of these words we don't want to say. When you get back, you get your strength back. That's how I know you're back, is when you start strengthening your brother. When you're back is you strengthen others. Peter, we're all Peters in some ways. Some of us are more Peters than others. Can we stop someone from sifting? Can you feel yourself when you feel like you're going to be sifted? Can you feel it on a person when I suddenly feel this person's fixing to be sifted? Can you feel it when you're about to be sifted yourself? Can you pray hard enough not to enter into temptation? Do you have a prayer life that you can pray so strong that the devil could be demanding someone's soul and you stop it from happening and turn them around? When you come in and on someone, can you stop it? I want to ask you a question. Could Ralph and Carol have not been sifted? It's up to you. Satan demands it every day. Amen. You could like now John sometimes good. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is your now, chance to get out.